we were scanning the dark web continually, trying to find out more information on, on the attack and were we being targeted, what was going on. And uh, we discovered the individual, we discovered someone claiming credit for the attack and saying they were behind the, the creation of the malware. Um, so late in the evening on day five, which was the last day that I was, had been up continuously, so just before going to bed for the first time in five days, I ended up having an online conversation with someone who was part of the team that had done this to us. Hello and welcome to Fishy Business, a series dedicated to exploring the lesser-known side of cybersecurity. I'm Alice. I'm Brian and we're colleagues at Mimecast. Every episode will be joined by a special visitor who's definitely not your average guest to share tales of risk, reward and ridiculousness. We'll be looking for new ways to think about cybersecurity to learn how we can all improve in the fight to stay safe. Brian, can you remember the last time you had a bad day at the office? In my line of work, I almost never have a bad day at the office. Well, never. I'm actually joking. We've all <laughs> had bad days at work and our guest today knows all about that. He's had one of the worst days at the office ever when he was Chief Technology and Information Officer of the world's biggest shipping company, AP Monovesk. Our guest today is Adam Banks. He's currently a non-executive director and advisor for multi-billion dollar companies. And as he puts it, reluctantly famous, or maybe infamous, for leading the recovery of, from the world's most expensive cyber attack. Welcome, Adam. Thank you so much for being with us today. Pleasure. Very much for, looking forward to our conversations. So Adam, you've, you've had a varied career, so why don't we start by simplifying things a little. How would you explain your, your current job at a dinner party? I'm not sure I can remember far enough back to dinner parties, to be honest. But, um, <laughs> if put on the spot, I, I guess I'd say I'm, I'm now using the learnings from the last 30 years um, with a small portfolio of businesses, about nine in total, um, to try and get them the maximum value possible out of their technology estates. And Adam, to that point, you mentioned, you know, your 30 year career, for example, and your, your experience there. Could you tell us around how you reached where you are today? You know, we may have budding um, listeners who are looking to have maybe a similar career as yours. And, and where did you start off and how did you get to your current position? Um, so I, I got a degree in software engineering, um, which back in the early 90s was quite unusual. Um, computer science was the main flavour in those days. The, the first corporate role I had was with Lloyds of London, and I was fortunate to be selected by Lloyds to be one of their cultural change opponents. Um, I was the most junior on the team, it was a team of about eight, um, and, and that really opened my eyes up to, I guess the fact that systems with carbon elements, i.e. humans, are significantly more interesting than systems that rely solely on silicon. And so from then on, whilst I stayed in technology, it was much more around technology organisations, the capabilities and, and the function of technology rather than tech itself. I mean, in things of, you know, in terms of things like priorities, um, where, where was your biggest focus? I mean, you mentioned sort of the, the carbon-based systems, and, and I guess that's one of the challenges in cybersecurity is we tend to, um, I, you know, I often get quite upset when people disparage the, the sort of human element, but really IT is actually about people and business is about people, and technology is actually meant to be in the service of people. But if you kind of look at what the priorities and challenges that you faced in that role, what, what, do, they, what do they look like? Um, so 
the, the three sort of overarching objectives that I, I set in, in year one um, was number one, to increase the value we received from technology. So that was very much focused on the technology we had on day one. So it was a run objective and it was all around making sure the systems were more available, more flexible, ran better and delivered a better service to those that used them. Um, the second one was to increase our ability to deliver change. At the time, so year one, I think the organization struggled to deliver $400 million of change in a year. Wind forward three years and we were delivering well over a billion dollars of change in a year. And I'd argue that the value metric increased even more. Um, so it was not so much three times the amount of change from a value perspective, we probably got four or five times the amount of change out. And then the final piece, which is the, always the real balancing act piece, was to build the organization that could do the first two things. It is really easy to deliver either of the first one or two on that list by going to consultants or third parties and buying it. You can buy better quality run from a different organization, but to build the competence and the skills it needs to be do it better yourself is quite tricky. And then so the, the, the balancing act was always trying to make sure we didn't sacrifice tomorrow to get early delivery today. Do you have any insights or advice on, on how CTOs can more effectively communicate with the board? Yeah, so obviously I'm on half a dozen boards now. And, and whether it's the CTO, the CIO, who, whoever is coming in from tech, typically wants to talk about what they've done. Tech is hard to understand, but I get that. So, so you don't get a huge amount of um, thanks for, for doing that role. But the board doesn't ever really need to hear about what. It needs to understand why. So well, why was the thing done rather than how was it done? and the future value that we have having done it. So, so one of my favorite uh, examples of this would be, um, if we look at becoming data-centric as an organization, the, the CTO conversation around that may well be centered on the build of the data lake and the, the tooling and the analytics that they've put over it. You actually get no value from that at all as a business, unless the culture of the organization changes such that people are empowered and feel capable of making the decisions with the data that's being fed to them. And then, so for me, the, a, you know, a fully rounded CTO conversation would briefly touch on, we've got this new capability, but here is what we need to do as a business to make it maximize its value. If you look at the kinds of cyber threats that uh, typically sort of logistics and transportation industry face, how well understood are they in, in that particular industry or that, in, that particular industry vertical? That, that seems to be a challenge across the board, you know, from CTOs, where um, CTOs tend to focus on, on delivering the business value that, that, you know, moving more to a digital type of business model can, can get to, but often struggle to, to, to kind of convey the, the risk side of that equation well. I mean, would, would you agree with that assessment? And, and is it different in logistics and transportation, or is, or is it fairly similar across the board? I'm not sure I would agree that, that CTOs are less able to, to talk articulately about the risk. In, in my experience, the, the big challenge with trying to get boards particularly to understand the risk is we're talking about something that should be in the once in a hundred year type event. And therefore the proximity of that risk is quite remote. So, so, so it's easily dismissed as, yeah, but it won't happen to us. What we've seen in shipping over the last three or four years is pretty much all of the large carriers have been hit over the last three or four years at some point to various degrees. And part of the reason being is that in asset-centric businesses like shipping, data is not the asset. 
the data is the grease that makes the asset work better. When you look at financial services, and I sit on a couple of bank boards, that the way banks can protect data is by centralizing it in the same way you would money in a vault and then putting layers of protection around it. If you're using data as grease, it has to be where the assets are, which in a business like Maersk or any of Maersk's competitors, they're globally distributed. So, so the thing you're trying to protect in terms of data processing and data is global in nature. And that makes it quite difficult to protect to the same degree that a bank would protect it. Um, you certainly wouldn't want to lock it up because it would lose its value in an asset-centric business if you locked it up. So I think we, it is slightly more difficult in asset-centric businesses. But it doesn't mean it can't be done. I do believe that it is possible to secure it to the same degree you would secure a bank. So let's maybe turn to who you're securing it from. I really like that analogy of sort of Greece versus, uh, you know, something that can, can be locked up. But what are the actual cyber criminals aims when they're trying to get hold of, of that kind of data? Are, are the aims purely financial or is ensuring, uh, you know, disruption? Is, is, is that part of it? I think it depends on who the cyber criminals are. Um, Obviously, anything that is private enterprise is going to be monetary driven. So that's likely to be ransomware and uh, using disabling of assets as a way of exerting pressure or extorting. That said, I mean, gl global shipping is what genuinely what makes the world go around. 70% you know, of the, everything produced in the world is shipped at some point. That means it's a core part of the economies of most of the mature countries on the planet uh, it makes it a political target and, uh, and nation states certainly are looking to disable the physical assets as much as they are you know, disrupt any data or steal any data and i know um you mentioned there around you know some of the businesses that you've been working with and um you know potentially cyber attacks being say one in a, a hundred year experience and sometimes we liken that to you know you have house insurance but you hope that you never have to use it um yeah. What kind of advice do you give to the companies that you work with around, you know, helping to protect themselves against these kinds of attacks or um, what they can do in terms of preparation, if potentially when that might happen? So, so for me, it's very much on the second part of your, your question. Uh, if, if we look at what happened to Maersk, you know, it was a nation state cyber attack. It was a day zero exploit that was used. They targeted 7,000 companies. They successfully took down 7,000 companies. There was no opportunity not to be impacted. So the real question comes about what, what are your capabilities for recovery? How well-trained are your people in managing in a crisis? And you can only really do that with experience. So, so I, I actively encourage any business I work with to do the exec level crisis management I'm going to use the word training, but I mean that scenario stuff where it gets thrown on you. What you, you know in advance that you've got a day blocked out for crisis management. You don't know what the crisis is. And then they hit you again and again and again during that day with all sorts of weird and wonderful scenarios of you. The building being shut, shut out of the building by activists, water poisoned, um, fuel supplies restricted, a whole range of things that mean that the organisation has to think on its feet. And that's, to me, that the ability to think on the feet and make decisions in real time is what makes some businesses successfully recover from a cyber attack and others stagnate. And you mentioned there around the um, attack that Maersk um, went through and, and, you know, dealing with that. And I think you're potentially quite a unique um, CTO to be able to speak out in great detail about that experience. We don't see many of your peers potentially speaking out in the same way. What are your thoughts on that? And do you think maybe a, a culture of silence could potentially benefit the criminals? 
I'd flip it around the other way. And I think a culture of openness benefits the organisation that's been hit and, the, and any other organisation around it. So if I take the Maersk example, the first crisis management meeting uh, we instituted was about eight hours after the attack hit. And it was in that meeting that we decided to be as open as possible. Um, now, when you make that decision, bearing in mind it's sort of 72 hours before you actually know what's going on, you're making a decision to tell your customers something's happened, but you don't know what and you don't know when you're going to be back. So it's quite a brave thing to do at that point in time. But three weeks later, um, we were after certain skill sets that were just not available in the market because this was a global event and there were so many companies that were hit. Certain skills, like Azure Cloud Engineers, you couldn't get from any consultancy. They're all... If you had that skill, you've been hired and sold out instantly to customers that needed it. Because we've been open about where we were, we were able to go out to our customer base and to our partners and say, we need these skills. If you haven't been hit and you have those skills in your organization, can we borrow them for two weeks? And then we got 100 or thereabouts quite highly skilled individuals lent to us for two weeks to help with our recovery. If you hadn't been open, you couldn't go down that path. So, so openness helped us when we've been hit. I also spent a lot of time, so I did 180 customer visits in the six months after the attack to talk to our customers about it. And, and what struck me there was at some point in that conversation, the CEO would turn to the CIO and say, if this happened to us, what would it be like? And no one said it would be better than the experience Merck had had. They all said it would be worse. And, and for that reason, you feel like you want to share the experience because it should be the same for everybody. If MERS turned out to be the poster child for the recovery, then we should have every company be able to recover to the same degree from the same event. And, and so by sharing the experience, the, the things we've done after the event to reduce vulnerability, we, we, we weren't unusually vulnerable at the time, but there's stuff we can do from the learnings of the recovery that make us less vulnerable. And sharing those kind of things, I think, helps any business. Why would you want to learn from your own incident when you could learn from somebody else's at the end of the day? And I think that whole openness is, is really, really important because it does tend to, to demystify some of the issues. But if we could maybe just uh, zoom in a little bit to that eight hours before you decided to be open. I mean, you say you infamously or famously led the recovery from one of the world's largest cyber attacks. Could you maybe just tell us a bit about how you first came to hear about it? It was obviously, or maybe not so obviously, but I'm presuming it was something of a normal kind of a day, and then suddenly things started to go wrong. Could you take us through a little bit of that? Yeah, sure. Um, so Maersk's head office is in Copenhagen. Um, as you might expect from a shipping company, it's on the water side. Um, it was early summer, um, so it was actually a glorious day in Copenhagen, very sunny. And I was stood out on the literally on the water's edge on the quay, having a corporate photo shoot. We've got a photographer for two hours doing various shots, headshots, stills, you know, the, the range of stuff that you need for, for corporate life. And uh, it was about an hour into that photo shoot that um, I got a call on my mobile. Um, I have two mobiles, a UK one and a Danish one. I got a call on both simultaneously. And that was from the monitoring centre, um, which is in the UK. And they were seeing inexplicable behavior on the network that, that, that was all they were able to say at that point um but that that's how i i got to find out something was going on when, when you ask you know, when did i find out what was going on 
it really does depend on how much detail you need to understand what could be anything up to 48 hours later. I mean, some things happening, you know, you're going to need to shut the network down, you know, you're going to need to take action, but understanding whether it was targeted at us, understanding whether it was a failure, understanding whether it was an attack, all of that takes time. And uh, I'd say it was probably 48 hours before we got a real good handle on that. Would you be able to share with us maybe what was going through your head at the time when you learned the, the extent of the attack? Yes. So at the end of the first day, uh, Maersk has 599 physical locations it operates from. Uh, obviously, when you have an attack of this scale, you've lost your network. So not only have you lost devices, you have no VC capability, you have no voice capability because it's voice over IP. And you have no, no mobile phone capability because all the contacts that you used to have on your mobile phone have been wiped when Outlook went down. So, so you, know, you really have no ability to reach out to those 599 sites and ask them what state they're in. So I'd asked a number of people to go around head office and do an inventory of all the equipment in head office. So, so you know, give me a count of the laptops and desktops and how many are working. And that came back at about midnight on the first day, uh, maybe a bit earlier, 10 p.m. So it was a 12, about 12 or so hours after the incident started. And there were three and a half thousand devices in the office of which eight were working. So if you scale that up and say, let's just assume that every site's been hit to the same degree, um, that brought us to sort of 60, 65,000 impacted devices. Um, so that, that was the working assumption when I went to bed that night. We, we've been in touch with Microsoft, who felt it was a um, ransomware attack, and, and the, the best route forward was to do a brute force attack on the, the encryption so that they could give us the pass key to reverse the encryption. Um, about four in the morning, I got a call from Microsoft CISO and to say that they had been able to do that. However, it turns out the password was unique to the device. And it had taken them, I think it was 22,000 compute hours. So the moment you do the maths and go, okay, 65,000 machines, 22,000 hours per machine, plan A's in the bin. That's just not going to work. Um, so really it was, you know, once I understood the extent, I had a four or five hours sleep where I was sleeping fine. And then after that, you woken up to say, okay, the, the recovery plan A isn't going to work. And it's back to plan B. But no one had got a plan B for this kind of scenario. So that was then basically make it up on the fly. And what was the conversation with the CEO and, and the senior leadership of the business like at that point? I mean, did everybody realize the extent of the problem quite early on? Or did it just slowly become apparent as, as you started to get, uh, you know, these kinds of insights? So the, the first thing I did after, the first call I made, once I had had the call to say we've got a problem, um, on the call that said we've got a problem, I gave the guys the all clear to shut the global network down. That seemed to be the most sensible thing to do. I gave the CEO a call then to say, look, I'm shutting the global network down and yeah, everything will be down for the whole day. It, you know, it takes six or eight hours to shut a network of that scale down. Um, same amount of time to bring it back up. So even if we do nothing with it when it's down, it's 16 hours or thereabouts. Um, he was just in the process of taking off. Um, he was on a plane when I called him. And uh, so we agreed to speak when he landed and I got a better feel for what was going on. In terms of the rest of the exec, I, I abandoned our corporate crisis management process about 
five or six hours into the incident, mainly because it was focused on assets. As an asset-centric business, our corporate crisis management was tuned for ships sinking, oil rigs catching fire and that kind of stuff, um, and instituted a, a banking protocol, which basically has the exec meeting every six hours for an hour. And I was the chair of that, that, that group. So um, that's the way we managed the recovery. And because we were all together for an hour every six hours, it actually kept everyone on the same page and, and kept the conversations real. So there was very little blame game going on. Um, I, I was listening out for someone saying we have an IT problem. At no point, either during the event or after the event, did anyone describe this as an IT problem. It was the company's cyber attack, which I thought was quite a positive way of looking at it. And I think that's fascinating. I'm hearing a lot of things here. I'm hearing openness is important, being agile is important. It sounds like most of your crisis management had been focused on other types of crises. Um, but in a sense, as you say, cyber is, is not necessarily an IT problem, especially as, as companies and organizations become more digital. It, it's, a, it's a company problem. It's a business problem. But I mean, all told, you talk about people being involved in communicating with people. How many people would you say were involved in the recovery effort? About 10,000, um, which certainly in the early days, in the, in the first seven to 10 days, when that was being done without email, without um, you know, collaboration tools, that was, that was pretty difficult to, um, to stay on top of. Yeah, all, all information was hand recorded, passed you know, mouth to ear um, verbally, either over phones or in rooms. And then so controlling that organization was fairly tricky for the first 10 days. And I know you mentioned there, Adam, that, you know, the first night you got, say, four or five hours sleep. And then after that news um, around, you know, this potentially no plan B, there wasn't much sleep thereafter. Yep. How did you find it kind of making what I can imagine were extremely difficult decisions in a, a very short time frame on, you know, say, very little sleep or, or trying to look after yourself to make sure you were able to make those decisions? Um, and then so that there's a mode you go into when this stuff happens and, and the, the first chunk of it is sorting out the practicalities so, so I, I've structured the recovery into eight separate focus areas eight separate streams each stream had a lead and each stream had total autonomy to do what they need to do within their own space um, we brought those those groups together every six hours again to basically report on had they done what they said they were going to do what what have they not been able to do what did that mean for everybody else and then what their next plan was but one of those eight streams was um all the assistants i got all the pas and eas together and made them or asked them to sort out logistics and there's just some really basic practical stuff if you're going to bring so a standard office with a thousand people in it, if you're going to say, right, we're going to stick 5,000 in that office and we're going to work 24 seven or 20 hour shifts, seven days a week, you pick, pick. And we did do 24 seven for three days. And then we, we dropped to 16 hour shifts and then ultimately down to 12 hour shifts. But the infrastructure of those buildings can't cope. There isn't enough food to go around. Um, you need, we, we installed fridges on every, every floor and put, just, just filled them up with, with soft, soft drinks snacks on every table. Um, we block booked every hotel within a 50 kilometer radius of the office, um, booked, block booked cars. So again, if you've got people that live locally, it's fine for them to go home, 
but you can't allow them to drive home after being up for 72 hours in the office. They need to be taken home. And all of those sort of logistics bits were, were stuff we had to push on. Um, personally, my experience was the same as everybody else's. I was in, uh, from day two, I had uh, four days with no sleep um, and then 14 days of four hours sleep a day, but sleeping in the office. Um, so didn't, not leaving the office. And then I resorted to local hotel for the next two and a half months. So you're always available to the office or within the high proposed proximity of the office for that time period. Um, it, I never felt under pressure from a decision-making point of view. The, so, you know, people afterwards said that was a really brave decision. Yeah, well, it, it wasn't because we had no choice. At the point in time, all the decisions you make are to try and get something, you currently have nothing. So there's no risk aspect for the decisions, um, which is quite liberating. Um, the, the other piece is you, the whole company has a single agenda. You haven't got competing agendas. You, you've not got to split time between certain things. You can just force focus onto one thing. And you know, we, we, we rolled, out, rolled out a Windows 10 upgrade including all of the applications and all of the bespoke applications in nine days to 65,000 machines. You can only do that when, when you have the freedom that having nothing gives you. And so I, I would say it's a lot of people who were involved look back on that time quite favorably. And I guess it's not just the legal issues that are a challenge. It's also kind of the social and the media pressure. I mean, you mentioned earlier, uh, these crises get to a point where they start to hit the kind of local headlines, um, which, and, and I guess let me ask you this in a positive way, which kind of media coverage do you say actually was the most accurate around this incident and, and which kinds, you don't have to mention any specific names, were kind of least accurate and, and most sensationalist and, and, and just basically got it wrong? Um, so, so in this case, one of the things you, you need to understand is, yeah, Denmark has five big companies that between them account for about 80% of the GDP of the country. Um, Maersk is one of those. It's a bit like growing up in the UK, you know, all small boys want to work for Aston Martin or Rolls-Royce. In Denmark, they all want to work for Carlsberg or um, Maersk. And as a result, the media there it was very hungry for information. And no matter how much we gave them, they were always going to make stuff up. But I'd say generally the media were fairly okay because I think we were putting out enough information for them to report on. Another reason for being transparent. If you don't put the information out, they'll make it up. Within all that chaos and, and the, I imagine the huge stress of that cyber attack you experienced at Maersk, were there any, if we can call them maybe absurd or, you know, we like to look into risk reward and ridiculous, maybe ridiculous moments that you remember of, you know, sometimes if I don't laugh, I'm going to cry kind of moments, you know, any in that, that area? Uh, there's two I'd probably call out. Um, the first one's the simplest, so, so I'll explain that. The, I didn't want the, the technology teams focused on rolling out in user devices it's a waste of their talents. We needed them on recovery of applications, recovery of data, making sure that the sort of the back end estate was rebuilt and working again. So the way we enabled that was customer services and sales took on the job of rebuilding all the laptops and desktops. What technology did was create a uh, memory stick 
that you just plugged into the device, having wiped it, put the stick in and then boot, and it would automatically build that device and join it to the network. Um, the challenge we had was we needed, back to the 599 locations, we needed to get a couple of memory sticks to each of those roughly 600 locations so that they could do that. So I mentioned the admin support team that had been set up. I sent them out to buy 1,200 memory sticks so that we could use a memory stick replicator to, to generate those. It hadn't even occurred to me that large stores, companies like Staples, only keep five or six memory sticks in stock because no. the, value, the value of those sticks decreases so quickly because, you know, 24 meg is, is, was loads last year and is nothing this year. Um, they, we exhausted the supply within about a hundred mile radius, having people driving thousands of miles to buy those um, and ended up having to give up that plan and, and go down a different path to distribute those build images um, just because you couldn't buy the memory stick. So that one was one that made me, me chuckle somewhat. <laughs> wow. Um, Buying up the whole of Amazon's supply of <laughs> memory sticks for the sounds of it. Well, you know, massive you know, retail park stores you would think would have loads of memory sticks, but no, yeah. it's <laughs> very few for, for price sensitive reasons. Wow, um, interesting. The other was about five days into the, the, the attack. Um, so we, at this point, we'd got some basic capability back. So we, we've got a network. We've got Active Directory running. We will propagate. Most of the network was consumed with propagation of Active Directory around the world in terms of rebuilding that. Um, but we've got probably 20% capacity on some of the core systems. So, so enough to want to protect it. Yeah, we, we, we've gone from a totally analog company to probably a 1980s company at this point in terms of digital use. And as a result, we were scanning the dark web continually, trying to find out more information on, on the attack and were we being targeted, what was going on. And uh, we discovered the individual, we discovered someone claiming credit for the attack and saying they were behind the, the creation of the malware. Um, so late in the evening on day five, which was the last day that I was had been up continuously, so just before going to bed for the first time in five days, I ended up having an online conversation with someone who was part of the team that had done this to us. Wow, blimey. Yeah, I can imagine. And sort of rubbing your eyes if you're quite tired and thinking, oh, is this actually happening? Very much so. Um, they obviously wanted payment. We'd reverse engineered the malware at that point, so we knew that it was irreversible in terms of the damage that it did. Um, but they were seeking a large sum of money for a key that didn't exist. Um, from a brand value perspective, we wouldn't have given it to them anyway, but at least if you knew that it was the key they were selling was fake, that made it a very easy no. But we took the conversation all the way through to getting their real Bitcoin account details um, and have since, were since able to provide that to law enforcement. Adam, thank you so, so much for joining us today and taking the time to speak with us. We've learned so much. It's been so fascinating to hear about your story. So thank you so much for sharing those with us. And um, we do always like to end our episodes with asking our guest three simple questions. So Adam, looking back over your career, what's the one insight that you wished you'd learned sooner that you could go back and tell to your younger self? Uh, it is that all change starts with the individual. And, and so if, if you can't change, nothing can change. Uh, and embracing that at a young age, I think would have put me on a completely different path. I don't know to where, but it would have put me on a, a different path and, and 
I'm sure my, my life experience would have been very different if I really understood that at an early age. I was probably 35 before I grasped that properly. That's great advice. I'm, I'm actually collecting all of these from our podcast guests and I'm going to tell them <laughs> to all my children. Brilliant. That's amazing. Thank you, Adam. And what are you reading or listening to maybe at the moment? Is there anything you'd recommend to our listeners? It's a bit left field, but you are, what am I reading at the moment? I'm reading The Curious Instant of the Dog in the Nighttime. Oh, great. Which is, a, which is a book about an autistic child that's written by an autistic individual. Um, and something quite close to my heart. Uh, and it, it, it really, back to the first point about understanding change, it allows you to see through the eyes of someone who's neurodivergent in terms of the way they think and the way they perceive the world, which is an interesting learning experience. Absolutely. Fantastic book. Yeah, I can also second that recommendation. That sounds like a good one. And I think this time next year, where do you think the world is going to be with cyber attacks? What, what trends are you spotting that other CTOs should be aware of? Well, as you guys track it and know that the level of activity is not, the activity curve is continuing to go in a very significant upward directory. Um, for me, what, what should people be aware of? I, I would say it's taking supply chain seriously. And, and the reason for that is lots of businesses use the fact that they're fairly anonymous to, to almost justify a weaker cyber posture than they should have. You know, we're, we're not going to be targeted. We're, we're not one of the big names. But when it's a supply chain attack, it doesn't matter. You just happen to be a user. You're a user of something that's a big name. And, and that, I think, is really going to change the threat profile for a number of the smaller businesses. And so for me, it would making sure that people were aware of that and not going to be the one who claims it was a wake-up call next. The wake-up call's happened, this is coming, and then you need to be ready for it. Yeah, it's not a question of if, but when. Absolutely. Uh, and, and I've even heard someone say, it's not when you've been hit, it's whether you know about it, which I've surprised to as much uh, with, with certainly the nation state activity. They're, they're so adept. There's a very good chance you have been and you just don't know. Absolutely. Definitely. Well, Adam, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Are there any final recommendations you'd like to leave with our, our listeners? Yes, for, for, for any of the C roles, actually, not just the, the CTOs or the CISOs. What we're talking about here is a mindset game. And, and your role as, as a leader in the company is to influence the mindset. And you can only do that through clear, concise, compelling communication. And technologists and finance people are, are notoriously bad at that. So I would just say, you know, let's make sure that we are doing everything we can from a communication perspective to get all of our colleagues to understand that this is real, it could happen, and we need to be ready for it if it does. Absolutely, definitely. Well, thank you so much, Adam, again, for, for taking the time to speak with us today. It really has been fascinating. We loved hearing all of your stories. And thank you so much to all of our listeners for joining on us on this week's Fishy Business. It's really been a pleasure to have you with us. If you have enjoyed our podcast today, please do leave us a review on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you're hearing this. And feel free to follow us on our Twitter page at Mimecast if you'd like to learn any more about what we discussed today. Until next time.